0: How's it going, everyone? This is TJ Martinell at tjmartinell.com. Thank you for listening to the Mountain Pass podcast. This is November 29th, 2021. I would go into some of my common jokes about it still being COVID and we're still in lockdown, but I'm actually in a better mood. Um, It is very early, or not too early in the morning, but I got up really early. Um, I'm feeling better because I just recovered from a particularly nasty cough, and cold from the other day so basically slept through yesterday then tried to do some reading and I think everybody knows when you don't have a fever and you're not you know you're not dying you're not bedridden but you just don't feel like doing anything and those are the times when you start picking up <clears throat> picking up books or doing things that you haven't done or have wanted to do and just been too distracted by other things that involve just short attention spans this was kind of on the spur of the moment so i do have something i do want, uh, want to talk about but we're going to get to that after going through a few of the interesting things so i've now pretty much settled into my house and Some people have traditions and their little rituals that they do around the Thanksgiving, Christmas, beginning of the Christmas season. And for my family, it was always the day after Thanksgiving, you went out and got your Christmas tree. And starting when I was a little kid, we always did the, the Christmas tree farms. There always seemed something that was, I guess, more meaningful and just it involved, it was a little bit more adventurous than just going to the hardware store, or the grocery store, grabbing a, a tree that had already been cut down, and then buying it and taking it home. You know, when you go to a Christmas tree farm, you got to go out and drive somewhere. You got to hope that there's parking. It's cold outside. You got to go out and explore all these different trees, and you got to look at them and decide which one's the right one for you. And then, of course, you cut it down. The way God intended, and then you go drag it back to your, back to the uh, parking lot. You pay for it. You get it all tied up. You take it home. Untie it. All these different things, and then we would always come up with find a, find a restaurant to go to, like a diner or whatever. After you know, it's usually thirty five degrees or forty degrees and wet. So get a warm drink and some food, and <clears throat> then you go home. And we decorate the house, which was always an interesting. <laughs> Process because we had to get all the boxes down from the attic, bring them down one by one, and then open them up and then stack them and put them back up in the attic. And unfortunately, I threw away most of my Christmas stuff or didn't throw it away. I donated most of it to Goodwill uh, earlier this year when I was just deciding that I was going to move out. So I was like, okay, anything that I don't need or I don't have sentimental value for, I'm getting rid of. So that's what I ended up doing. So there's just enough Christmas stuff to, <coughs> yeah, still, still recovering a little bit. There's just enough Christmas stuff for my main room. Unfortunately, because I'm here on the west side now, Reese, my hiking canine companion dog, is still in the central part of the state, so he was not able to come with me this year. Though he probably would have been more of a hindrance, <laughs> he probably would have been more of a hindrance. But he was—he would have still been fun. One thing I'm—I'm I'm going to probably appreciate this winter is even though it's supposed to be a really wet, cold one, so lots of snow in the mountains. Uh, apparently, my town doesn't get a lot of snow. It's right within the foothills of the Cascades, but it's not or not foothills. It's at the, it's at the base of a lot of the different mountains, but it doesn't actually get any snow, which is one of the things that was very scenic with living in the, the heart of Cascadia, which is, you know, my old house from earlier this year, it was very picturesque when you would wake up and there'd be just this perfect, you know, layer of snow all over the place or you could stay up and up until the late of the night and there would be snowing outside and your outside lights would be on and you'd just be able to watch it and have a warm drink and maybe read, read a book or watch a movie or something like that. <clears throat> Some people don't really care about that stuff, but, but for other people, it's like, you know, it's kind of enjoyable shoveling. The snow is a different matter, especially with my, my house, the, the, snow from the top of the roof would slide off onto my deck and then it would melt because of the sun and then it would freeze overnight and turn into this big block of ice. So I always had to constantly shovel all the snow off my, my deck to keep it from warping. Almost done with uh, my, my latest book. It's the, or not latest book. It's a book I wrote 10 years ago the process this very lengthy process of editing it and i've basically cut it in half in terms of length and it is the the sequel to the Shadow Men which you can read on Terror House magazine or terrorhousemag.com and it's going to be that, that book's going to be coming out in print at some point tentatively scheduled so this is a sequel i don't plan on writing an additional an additional book to this series i i wrote I got other books that I want to write. This is stuff I'm just putting to bed after after ten years. So, but as I was mentioning, I was yesterday when I was feeling just <clears throat> under under the weather and sitting. Now I finally have a sofa that I. It's a stitched sofa. It's not a leather. I I don't like leather couches. Those are okay for certain occasions, but. I had a leather sofa back in my old house and I really didn't like it and the reason was it was always cold so I'd have to throw a layer of blankets on it to just keep it from me from freezing on it dur- during the winter time but now with this this uh, stitched sofa I can just sit on it and it feels like I'm sleeping on a bed so makes it a little difficult to read because uh, you get too comfortable but I picked up a book I bought back in like two thousand and ten. it was it was a first edition um, and it's called We Took to the Woods and it's written by this woman called Louise Dickinson Rich. Rich is the last name I believe of her, the husband she married for this book. And I don't know why I bought it. I think it was just I was interested in first editions and it just it also had a cool um, cover. So the cover has, this log cabin um, in New England. So for backstory, this is about a, a, an English writer who married a guy who owned a two houses, a summer house and a winter house in some very remote part of Maine, and this was in the 1940s. And so this book is chronicling what it's like to live in this area, you know, all the difference. Oh, so the houses have no plumbing, they have no electricity, they have no running water. So everything that they need, they have to get. And they're also in a very remote location. And to just give you an idea of how remote it is, much of their means of transportation is dependent on the lake that they live near. And I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I think the place they lived near was, it was a middle dam, it was an actual dam, but they lived right next to a logging uh, campsite. But they re- relied on the lake freezing so that they could either uh, walk across it or, or take uh, wagons and, and horses and, and other types of animals to go to the, the, nearest, <laughs> the nearest store, the nearest uh, place for supplies. So they, there was a period of time where they would have to wait until it got – where there was not enough ice to where they could break through it on their canoes or their boats – but it also wasn't thick enough for them to walk across it. So these are people who are living in an environment that they, the climate is not controlled. Your, your life is built around how the weather behaves and rather than controlling the weather, the weather controls you. And the book's actually written in a very unique way. It's not a narrative. It's not telling it like a Robinson Crusoe. The, the, Teaser calls it a true story of a Maine family Robinson, and the funny thing is, it's not really written like a novel because it's not. It's a nonfiction book, and it's broken down into different chapters that are based around a central question, like, uh, you know, how do you survive? Like, what do you do for a living while you're living there? And so it's it's not your traditional storytelling. She's not doing it like. Uh, she's not doing it in a, she's not, I'll give another, a comparison, uh, a, a contrast. Uh, there's the book Dove. It's a nonfiction book about the 16 year old kid who sailed around the world over a five year period. Um, I can't, I think it was, his name was Robert, uh, Robin Graham. And that's more told like a fictional novel in terms of its narrative. It's... Him just it, it's very linear in how he's recounting this. So it starts at the beginning, like his childhood and all that stuff, and then it builds up to where he starts sailing, and then nothing's told out of order, whereas this book tells a lot of stuff out of order because it's based on these questions. And even despite that, it's not a difficult book to read. Uh, the writing's pretty, pretty easy to follow. But she wrote this very good. There's a passage that I almost want. Like, it wasn't just a passage. It's, a, it's an. It's several pages. So I'm going to be reading it because I think it's just. It's. It's really good writing. It's very insightful, and I thought it was worth. Um. Thought it was worth talking about and just discussing. So, <clears throat> to give a little bit of context to what she's about to write. So this is a woman who was raised after World War Two or World War One. My bad. So she's in her 30s at this point, she's married a a man who has children from a separate marriage. Um, She has just given birth to her son in their cabin during the winter, Uh, his name's Rufus. So she basically gave birth with no midwife, no hospital, and she said it was actually relatively easy. And ironically enough, she said that the reason why it was so easy for her uh, is because She didn't have a bunch of married women telling her how awful it was going to (laughs) be. A couple of red pill comments in the book. Um, But she's reading this this magazine that's talking about how underprivileged a lot of Americans are because they lack access to stuff like indoor plumbing, indoor bathrooms. Um, They're born without a doctor in attending. And so this is where she starts to write. You know, she says... They're us. They're talking about us. Why we're the underprivileged. But are we? I'm not stupid enough to recommend that all or even any children be born with only their fathers in attendance. And I'm going to skip around a little bit. I can't bring myself to believe that our children are hopelessly handicapped because they take baths in wash tubs in front of the kitchen range, read by the light of kerosene lamps, and sleep in unheated bedrooms. We'll give them a bathroom and steam heat and electric lights when we get the house rebuilt, but perhaps we'll be making a mistake. Soft living isn't important to them now because it never has been. They're never going to be miserable because of physical inconveniences. Perhaps the best thing we can give them in a world where the possession of material things become more and more precarious, in a world of marching armies and destruction-dealing skies, is a tough fibred indifference to heat and cold and comfort and discomfort. What we can give our children, then, that won't be out, uh, outmoded, that won't, under some eventuality that we can't foresee, prove to be a handicap to them. I don't know the answer to that one. Once I would have said ideas and ideals. But I grew up in the years after the First World War when perpetual peace was supposed to be the easily attainable ideal. I was trained in that ideal and I believed in it with all the sincerity of which I was capable. Perhaps it is still attainable, but if it is, it will be by some different means than those I was taught to trust in. I don't want my child ever to feel as lost in the world as I do right now. Nor do I want to inculcate in him the doctrine of force and aggression at no matter what sacrifice of the rights of others. We can give him a happy childhood to remember a way of life that he will be willing to die to protect if the need arises. That sounds like a grim and Spartan gift to a little boy, but it's not as dangerous a gift as the belief in pacifism and universal well-wishing to which my generation was exposed. I don't want to raise my son to be a soldier, but if he has to be one, I want him to be a good and capable one. I want him to know what he's fighting for, and freedom and democracy won't mean a thing to him, unless they are all tied up with memories of things that he has loved ever since he can remember. Things like the sound of the river, and the white kayak lies and dreams in front of the open fire on a crisp autumn evening, and the picnics we've held at Smooth Ledge. The name of his country won't be worth fighting for, unless he can remember from experience that his country is the place, not of equal opportunity, not of universal suffrage, not of any of these lofty conceptions so far above a little boy's ability to comprehend. But the place where he walked with his father down a wood road one evening and saw a doe and twin fawns. Or the place where he came in front of Plain in the snow and found the kitchen warm and fragrant and his mother making popcorn balls. That's all I can give him. That's all that I dare to try to give him. Something that he will love enough to want to preserve it for himself and others against whatever danger may threaten from whatever quarter. And the toughness and courage with which to fight for it. To bring him up untouched by war insofar as it is possible in a world where no one is completely unaffected by war today is about the only contribution that I know how to make for the future. So she was writing this in 1942, so right in the middle of the Second World War. And I was really struck by this passage because she, I think, is doing something or articulating something that a lot of people get very hung up on, where they say, what are we fighting for? And people will say, oh, we're fighting for, they always come up with these abstract ideals, these abstract concepts. But Louise Dickinson Rich here is pointing out that ideals and abstracts have to be tied to something real. And when a lot of people went off to fight in a war, whether it's accurate or whether it's what they're, whether that war is actually protecting it, isn't the point. I think this is where people get a little hung up. It's about what, what is motivating this person to fight? You know, For all those guys who signed up after Pearl Harbor, for all those men who went and fought in these different theaters of war, what was it that they were thinking about that they were wanting to protect? And it probably wasn't the United States government. It probably wasn't the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. More likely, it was memories of their childhood and their neighborhood and the, all the different things that they had known growing up. The festivals, the, the Christmas parades, the, the memories that she's describing here. What people fight to protect are a way of life that they grew up with. And that's something that they have to also have if they're going to want to fight for anything. And for those who don't have it, they fight for it for they fight for something where they have a very strong and precise vision of what they think the future is going to look like. And it's always some sort of, you know, for lack of a better description, a Norman Rockwell idealistic situation. And maybe the idealistic situation isn't a permanent, sustainable thing, but it's those anecdotes. Or not anecdotes, it's those vignettes. It's those moments of brightness in life. Obviously, relationships aren't always a period of uninterrupted ecstasy, but it seems like what sustains many of them are those moments. And those are things that people remember very fondly from their childhood are those vignettes. You know, that one, that one holiday when everybody was gathered together and people just got along. It was good food and it was a just, you know, somebody told a story or everybody was huddled by the fireplace. Or that time when everybody went went together for a hike and came back and, you know, endured some harsh weather conditions together. Everybody wants to call me right now while I'm on a roll. And here's kind of the sad thing. Not to be... I'm in a good mood, but I just wanted to point this out while I was talk, thinking about this. The stuff that she's describing... In, in general. The kind of upbringing, the childhood. Positive memories. That way of life. The relationships that this son's, this son's having with the parents. Where they're spending time together in a meaningful way... that way of life, for how many people has it been taken away without a war? And for how many people is merely the abstract concepts all that remains? That and memories of a life that no longer exists. And for many people growing up today, Recollections of a world that they'll never know. And so rather than fighting to preserve a way of life that exists, many people are faced with the realization that they're going to have to fight to regain or to rediscover a life that once existed. And the question then, since the war that, since the destruction of all these things occurred without an actual war, how then are those things going to be regained? I don't have a solution for those issues. I don't have a solution to those I don't have an answer to that question. I don't think that there is an, an answer in general. I think that it's up to everybody who actually wants that kind of stuff to find their own way. You know, it's not every man for himself, but every person's got their own unique circumstances. And I think maybe what it starts with is actually acknowledging what's going on. Realizing what, how things are. You know, over the last two years, we've witnessed the, the a transformation in our society and in our culture. And for many people there's no going back in terms of how this is their their lives are gonna be this way forever. And there's definitely gonna be an effort to make this the norm forever. Where everybody's constantly worrying about getting sick, you know, I got sick and I'm doing fine, I recovered but a world where kids are always wearing masks. Everybody's terrified of getting sick. And rather than enjoying life, people are obsessed with not dying. And the reality is that you can never live life if you live a meaningful life if you're ruled by fear. To live life, you have to not be afraid of, of this kind of, of that. You can't be afraid of what might happen. And so it seems like that's the fight we have ahead of us, is for a world that isn't directed, governed, and pred- and based on the fear of the, of, frankly, very unlikely things. A of, of fear of other people. A fear of anything, anywhere, at any time coming to kill you in the form of of a virus or a disease. It's obvious that the, the next generation has been, this upcoming generation, the young, have been cruelly denied the kind of memories that this mother is describing in this book. And so who's going to restore that kind of life? And, fr- and the reality is it's up to each family to do that, to make a conscious effort to make it happen. This is not something that's gonna be solved through a government, through a school board election, through a national election, through petitions, boycotts. It's going to be done through consensual, voluntary efforts on the part of people in their own family. And like this family, there were sacrifices made for the kind of life that they were living. And I'm not saying that people should all eschew electricity, internet, indoor plumbing, and all the and, and all the creature comforts of the world. But maybe to regain what's been lost, we have to give up things that have been gained by that sacrifice, potentially by that sacrifice. and being willing to accept the consequences. So on that note, <clears throat> I think we'll end on that. So thank you for listening to the Mountain Pass Podcast. This is your host, TJ Martinell, coming to you from my fortress Americana in the heart of Cascadia. Signing off.